0: If you want to have a ball, you got to spend some cash, so let the good times roll. Let Welcome, everyone, to roll. Geopolitics Decanted. It's going to be a very interesting episode. My name is Dimitri Alperovitch. I'm chairman of Silverado Policy Accelerator a Geopolitics Think Tank in Washington, D.C. And I'm joined by Michael Kaufman, Russian military expert at the Center for Naval Analysis, and Rob Lee, a Russian defense policy expert and senior fellow in the Foreign Policy Research Institute. Welcome, gentlemen. Well, we have a very big announcement this morning coming from Putin and Defense Minister Shoigu about this partial mobilization of potentially up to 300,000 people. It's about as clear as mud at the moment, but it looks like conscripts that are in the service today will not be sent to the war zone, to the uh, zone of uh, special military operations, as they call it, in Ukraine, uh, but reservists and uh, potentially others that have military experience um, and particularly have special skills like um, tank drivers, artillery personnel, uh, reconnaissance units, etc., cetera, uh, may be called up. Uh, Shoigu has declared that there are 20 up to 25 million people who are potentially eligible for mobilization, and uh, about 1% of them, slightly over 1%, about 300,000, will be actually called up. We're now seeing uh, some evidence that uh, at least some of the people that are getting called up today, they received their notices yesterday. So this is a very rapid um, process that uh, they're undergoing. And uh, at least in at least one case, the gentleman who has prior military experience will be um, sent for two-week training uh, on September 26. So in five days, uh, and presumably after that, uh, sent it into the war zone. So Rob, let's start with you. Uh, kind of your your initial thoughts on the Russian military's ability to actually execute. A massive mobilization. And, uh, and to be clear, Shoigu is saying that they're not going to grab everyone at once, all 300,000. This is going to be a gradual process. Uh, but what is their ability to actually train these people, even through this two-week training exercise that they seem to be modeling on their reservist force? And how big is the reservist force um, to begin with? So if, a few questions to start with.
1: So you said that there are more questions than answers right now. And one thing to keep note of is that Shoigu is a unreliable interlocutor. He often gives incorrect figures or, you know, makes other statements that don't turn out to be true. Um, So everything he says, you know, take with a grain of salt. Um, So, you know, we, we, the Russian military went away from the reserve, the kind of large-scale mobilization system the Soviet military had. Um, The Soviet military, they had certain units that were maintained at, at, you know, near wartime manning levels. They had other ones that were these cadre divisions, which were Basically, they did the officers, they had equipment, they had some um, uh, warrant officers, but they didn't have the enlisted. And basically, in wartime, you'd mobilize conscript reserves to arrive, and those units then are, are filled up with personnel. Um, they went away from that. That system was too kind of difficult to maintain that in a kind of permanent readiness unit in, uh, formation. And so they, they don't have the same kind of system available. And there's also a question about, you know, with conscripts. Right, um, Every regiment or brigade in the Russian military is supposed to have um, typically two battalions that can man are manned by contract soldiers, um, and then one battalion is manned by conscripts. We know in practice that they couldn't actually man two full b- battalions in most cases with contract soldiers. But the question is, the conscripts is, are those battalions, they still have the officers, they still have the NCOs, they still have the equipment available? Or were all of those things cannibalized to support the ongoing operation, uh, which I suspect they were? Um, and we, we've seen this other kind of examples where, you know, Russia has been taking sailors off ships to serve as tank, you know, tankers and other units um, doing things they did in Chechnya. So that, you know, that, that kind of uh, signals that the elements that are behind these units are not that significant. And we talk about if they do a mobilization, right? You know, when was the last time they did a really large scale mobilization? Uh, I'll rely on Mike for that. Um, but a lot of the structure isn't there. The same 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 kind of system they had in Soviet times. And then you know, keep in mind the Russian military when they train uh, enlisted soldiers, it's not centralized like it is in most Western countries. And so when conscripts get drafted, they get sent to a unit, um, and they get trained at a unit by by the, the the unit's kind of training staff. And then some of them sign contracts, become contract soldiers. Well, almost all those units are deployed. Almost all those units have taken very heavy casualties. The the elements that the remain behind elements as those units are probably not the best officers and And so big question of who trains these people? Uh, how are they going to be equipped? Who's going to lead them, right? The other option is that you can you can take kind of these trained soldiers and, um, you know, with, with some training or conscripts, you can use them as combat replacements to fill out units that are already fighting in Ukraine that are, you know, at, at, at kind of reduced strength. That's one option. Um, but, you know, one thing we just saw was we, we saw the deployment of Third Army Corps in, uh, you know, earlier this month. Um, I, I haven't seen all the details, but it doesn't appear, they've performed necessarily that well so far in Ukraine. That unit was a kind of different way of of manning a volunteer unit than what they tried before. It was, was all these kind of regional volunteer battalions that were sent to Molino training area. Um, they got three weeks of training, they got pretty good equipment, but still issues with leadership and other other problems. And of course three weeks of training is not that much. They're then deployed to Ukraine, you know, not not clear how how effective they've been. So if you if you train up these other reservists and you give them two weeks of training, it's still not that much. The quality training is still going to be questionable. Um, who's going to lead them? All these other things are still open questions. And again, when we talk about manpower, it's not just quantity. that's important. It's about um, how well trained are these soldiers? How much unit cohesion they have? What is the morale? Do they want to be there? All of these kind of things that are you know, intangibles factor into how useful units are. And you know, the, the, the prospects of mobilization mean that this war is going to be increasingly fought by volunteers on the Ukrainian side who are motivated to have morale. And on the Russian side, we're going to see a larger and larger share of people who do not want to be there. And there are a lot of you know negative implications for Russia if they keep doing that. Um, it might in the short term help because, you know, I think the most immediate short term response is that the the uh, refuseniks who refuse to fight, which is, you know, in some cases 20 to 40 percent of units, um, those guys will probably be forced to, to fight now with, with, uh, with the threat of kind of criminal uh, penalties that might help in some regards. If they do deploy conscripts, right, once they, they claim that these, you know, Ukrainian terrorists are actually Russian, um, that could also help in, in, in solving some manpower issues in the, in the immediate future. Um, and, you know, possibly the, the, the by stop-lossing all these volunteers who've been fighting, writing short contracts, that also kind of helps solve the immediate kind of manpower problem they're facing. But, you know, that might solve the, the issue for a few months. Is that going to be a sustainable solution? I, I don't think it is. I still think Ukraine has a lot of advantages going forward, um, and you know, one thing we've seen from the Russian military throughout this war, it hasn't done most things well, right? And so, is mobilization going to be done that well? Are these units going to be uh, uh, well trained and equipped when they deploy? Probably not, or based on on these other experiences. So, I think there are a lot of a lot of big questions here. I also think that you know, it's not clear if this is a partial mobilization or whatnot. You know, the 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 the, uh, the document itself didn't say partial whereas Putin and Shoigu both emphasize partial. But the, you know, the, the, the narrow specifications they mentioned would be a kind of narrow pool of reservists they deploy, but you know is, it's not fully clear how they're going to actually enact this in policy, and that's what we're going to have to watch to, to see how that, that uh, turns out.
0: And Rob, do we actually know how many reservists they have in the Russian military?
1: Uh, I don't know. I'd have to look that one up, but Mike might have a, have a figure for you. Yeah. Mike,
0: do you know?
1: Well, it depends what you mean by reservists.
2: I mean, well, whatever actual, they
1: mean.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's a bit of a misnomer. I, I don't see that as a genuine way to describe what they're doing in a sense that the uh, reserve system that was bars had already been used and deployed. And uh, a lot of these individuals are maybe listed as a potentially mobilized reserve, but they're effectively civilians with prior service that previously been conscripted and what have you. But uh, in and of itself, the folks they're probably mobilizing don't really constitute reservists in the way we may think of them in a the Western system.
0: And Mike, you know, one of the things that Putin did, of course, this morning is uh, make it very clear once again that the goal, um, at least rhetorical goal of this operation is to liberate, um, in his words, liberate the Donbass which is Donetsk and Luhansk Oblast, although they're, of course, moving forward with referendum, not just in those two oblasts next week, but also in Kherson and Zaporizhia, which are not part of the Donbass. But, you know, if we just stick to the Donbass and and his articulated goal, at least um, since uh, the defeat in in Kiev um, uh, last spring, what do you think are the prospects for them being able to actually take the rest of the Donetsk Oblast and and the part of the Luhansk Oblast that uh, the Ukrainians have actually managed to claw back in recent weeks uh, with this mobilization and and overall view from you on the impact uh, of this uh, effort on the war. I mean, on
2: prospects, I have no idea. I don't know what this mobilization is even going to yield. So right now, it's you know the morning of. I don't think that there's any sound predictions to be made on. What their prospects were for taking the Donbass after losing Kharkiv, the answer to that is probably no. And post-mobilization, I don't know. I have yet to see anything. So on my initial impressions regarding what this means, well, I think that Putin ultimately had to pick between uh, three not so favorable options. The first one was retrenchment, that is, retreating from territory and trying to consolidate defense against something the Russian military could hope to hold in Ukraine. He clearly doesn't seem to favor that, although he could enact that with the minimum of political risk. For example, withdrawing from the western reaches of Kherson. The second one was mobilization. And we had long discussed all the political downsides and the practical difficulties of implementing it. Rob just went through them. And the third one was escalation, which is sort of a non-option, but the one you would most expect Moscow to reach for as a sort of interim solution and rationalization before having to return to the question of either withdrawing to retrench or enacting partial mobilization to try to stabilize the force. So now clearly they've gone for uh, mobilization, which is likely to be phased and sequenced. I agree with Rob. Shugo's number 300,000 is just a notional figure that probably has no relationship to what's really happening. But I suspect they're going to begin uh, taking in people and trying to pro- basically trying to convert them in a couple of different ways into uh, into resolving their manpower issues. The first and most likely one is probably to raise the manning levels on currently deployed BTGs that they have, because many of these units in Ukraine are probably at 50 40% manning levels. The issue is that that's not so easy to do because soldiers aren't really plug and play. So the first question is, are they going to pull these units out of combat, rotate them back somewhere to Russia, and then try to integrate these new soldiers into these units, or are they just going to send them out there to try to fill the line? I don't know, maybe as dismounted infantry or, or mounted infantry or what have you. Uh, the second option is perhaps to try to quickly create uh, LDNR type units, you know, sort of cheap, large infantry regiments with maybe four infantry battalions and some motorization, but not much in the way of, of a maneuver force or, or a, you know, a particularly capable force. Um, and then the third one, of course, maybe over time, after some months, try to generate additional maneuver units to uh, create locally available reserves or to be able to conduct rotation on the line. But I think that would take quite a long time. And also, it's not clear if, you know, the 3rd Army Corps that they tried to create at Molino, is at all a model for this or more of a one-off experimental effort? So my general sense is that look, the implications of this are that Russia can try to uh, stem the deteriorating situation in their military and try to address the quantity aspect of the force, but they can't fix the quality. Because they've already used up their best equipment, their best uh, officers, uh, their best munitions, and the issue of morale is going to be a perpetual one, right? So the stop-loss policy is one of the more significant measures here, but enacting them, you know, in effect, takes a lot of your refuseniks, but it's probably going to turn some of them into deserters, and that's, that's the likely outcome, and... While it it will prevent people from being able to tear up their contracts, leave service, or refuse to redeploy, it will generate generate additional problems nonetheless. On looking at this kind of more medium to long term, look, it's clear the Russian military is very vulnerable going into the winter and actually looking even worse coming out into 2023. So what this may do is it may extend the Russian ability to sort of sustain this war, but not change the overall trajectory and outcome. That's kind of my preliminary take on on the overall impact and the political consequences and ramifications are potentially quite significant, as we've already seen, judging by the reactions of Russians
0: uh, this morning. So we'll we'll talk about the political ramifications in a second here. But uh, let me just um, uh, get your both of yours take on this. Uh, Both Putin and Shoigu seems to seem to have really focused on the fact that they're fighting across a thousand kilometer uh, front line. And that is really why they need that additional manpower. It's not because they're losing. It's not because of the of disaster. It's because the front line is so long. And Shoigu specifically said that those people will be sent to defend that front line, to control the occupied territories, and uh, to um, uh, uh, fill in the gaps um, in the front line that, that currently exist. Um, obviously, we can't necessarily take them at face value. But... Does should they actually follow through with this and leave the current uh, more professional force that is fighting the war for more offensive actions? Does that at all impact your assessment, Mike? And, and, and then we'll go to Rob as well.
2: You mean basically use this force to hold down the line yes, and then try to recon, kind of reconstitute what's left of uh, the regular Russian formations and use them more as the assault force in the Donbass or something along those lines?
0: Yeah, that, that seems to be, to me, what Shoigu is implying they want to do.
2: Well, sure. Uh, so they reached an epiphany now seven months into the war that uh, they do not have the force at all for the amount of territory they're trying to occupy and defend. And on top of that, they certainly don't have the force to conduct any advances. And I guess it took this massive defeat at Kharkiv for this realization to take place, certainly in Putin's mind, because you can this was the main topic that you and I have debated most recently, at what point will Putin realize that the Russian military can't grind the Ukrainian military down and isn't winning this war at all? It's actually losing it and very visibly. And if that's going to be a realization he reaches on his own or if he's going to you know, potentially stop listening to whoever's filtering this information to him right, in terms of the real state of the situation on the ground. So clearly that's taken place to some extent. Uh, could they do that? Yeah, look. Right now, it's a bit too early to tell what they actually intend to do with this force. I mean, it could be literally all of the above. The big question is, what are they actually going to get, right, first and foremost, in terms of this mobilization effort? Then the two main governing limitations are throughput. Rob spoke to that. The second main government limitation is capacity for force employment, right? Because no matter how many personnel they mobilize, whatever number you you may imagine it to be, the Russian military is actually quite constrained in the number of troops it can sustain and command in the theater of military operations. And one of the big challenges they've had throughout those forces since the beginning is scaling military operations and actually coordinating them and sustaining all these forces. So there's likely going to be a, a governing cap there, some ceiling on what they can maintain in Ukraine and in any, in any amount of time reasonably expect to be able to supply and command and control.
0: So, Rob, Mike's view is that this is going to prolong the war, but may not necessarily change the outcome. Is that you, your view as well? And do you think if, if they uh, constrain their ambitions to just the Donbas area, does this mobilization actually change anything?
1: So, I think it could, in the short term, um, prevent Ukraine from you know having more you know as much success as I think they would um, you know before the winter strikes. Uh, it certainly looks as though Ukraine is poised to to take back more territory before. The weather changes and you know it's very clear that russia had to make a decision right so something something had to change otherwise they're going to lose more territory if they start losing the donbass you know they can't they can't justify that away you can they can kind of make up this excuse that we didn't really want the heart you did not really care about harkiv but if the the stated purpose of this operation is about the donbass you start losing you know areas you control well you know there's, there's really no way to justify that so um they had to make some kind of response I think, you know, overall, the Russian strategy has been poor throughout this war, but particularly since April, right, when they refocused on the Donbass, it was this um, it was always this kind of bizarre uh, of, you know, strategy of even if they took the Donbass, that wouldn't force the end of the war. There was no way they had, they, they had no kind of plan for conflict termination other than hoping that either, you know, foreign countries stop supporting Ukraine or Ukraine stops fighting. Neither one has occurred and neither one is likely. And so instead the, the strategy they kind of developed was to throw increasing numbers of volunteers into this kind of meat grind the Donbass to take back some, you know, take, take some territory, but at really high costs. And now, you know, it looks like a lot of that was a kind of a Pyrrhic victory, whatever kind of small areas they took because they can't hold it now. And it, they're the risk of losing it. So by deploying some, you know, units, I think this is actually more probably a short-term kind of uh, um, decision because it's mostly what, Russia's leadership has done in this war. It's been how can we prevent failure of the next month, as opposed to what is the long-term end state of this war and how do we achieve it? Because it, it's still not clear to me, and it's not clear that I think Russians fighting this war of how they achieve their goals, how how they you know get Ukraine to kind of accept um, you know Russian occupation. There is there's no reason to believe that's going to happen, and so it's it's always this kind of incoherent strategy. So yes, the point is, guys, you know if you, if you increase manpower, that could help them whole territory for the time being. But again, you know, it, there are so many issues that come about. when you deploy people who do not want to be there and we deploy units that aren't well trained. And one of the you know, big things that I think is important to emphasize is that you know, the first month of this war, it was primarily a professional Russian force fighting. It was the Russian military. It was the Russian National Guard. And it was the professional units of the of the, um, you know, LDNR areas, which are you know, essentially Russian military units. Um, since then, since that really heavy attrition in the first month, increasingly it's a war fought by volunteers, by, you know, different reserve units, by Wagner, by all these other kind of groups. And it's this weird amalgam of fighters right now that's not that professional what it was before. And if you increase that, right, it, you get a larger number of, of you know, p- potentially the majority of the force of people who are not necessarily serving there voluntarily, um, who are not professional soldiers and there are all these kind of issues going forward. And of course, you know, Ukraine is a significant advantage of morale, significant advantage of motivation. And at some point, this is not a sustainable, um, the prospects are not sustainable for Russia to, to think they're going to win the war with that. And so what we might be seeing is this kind of is partial response immediately to try and prevent a kind of collapse in the near future. But, you know, it, it doesn't signal that they have some way to respond over the medium and long term of how they're going to win this war. And of course, you know, the other element is if, if you draft more guys who are not well trained or you force people to, to serve who don't want to serve okay they might be able to to sit in a trench and kind of defend a trench they're unlikely to be very successful or useful if you want to do offensive operations and you know the professional russian units that russia has like the vdv they're heavily fighting herson they're not rotating as much and big questions going forward how you know how long can you rely on them at this kind of rate of 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 attrition and rate of kind of usage um and of course Russia's not producing new professional units, and, and and the the entire recruitment system they have it's there's no one back there to train these units, no one to lead them, and so it's not as though they have a sustainable kind of solution here, like say the U.S. did in in Iraq. So all these issues are going to go forward. The longest war goes on, all these kind of problems I think are going to increase. The more people who don't, who don't want to serve, who are, who are being forced to serve, you know, the, the any number of you know morale um, issues, Dis- can- discipline
0: issues too, right?
1: Exactly, and again, you you can look at I mean, you can look at the U.S. Army, at, you know, at the end of the Vietnam War, right, with all these kind of morale and discipline issues. Um, you know, I suspect you're going to see even worse things on the Russian side, and it, it, again, that's not it doesn't bode well for Russian success. There's no reason to think that's going to lead to kind of Russian victory, and it's still not clear how they would achieve that, and or, or you know exactly how this kind of would would lead to kind of conflict termination.
0: And um, you mentioned the VDV for those that don't know the Russian military acronyms, that's the Russian Airborne Forces, um, that are fighting currently in Kherson. But uh, guys, let's talk nukes. Uh, Mike, you've written a great piece for The War on the Rocks that I think is based on a paper you published uh, maybe a couple years ago on escalation management and nuclear employment in Russian military strategy. You did that with Anya Fink. Uh, You had Putin uh, referring to nuclear weapons uh, in his speech, uh, making it clear that Uh, all means uh, uh, are available to him to defend Russian territory. And of course, Russian territory is almost certainly about to be significantly expanded next week with these referendums, the sham referendums that are going to take place in these four oblasts in in Ukraine. Um, Result is pretty clearly uh, already determined. Um, And I expect just like in Crimea in 2014, as soon as they have a yes vote, uh, which I expect to be overwhelming. Uh, they will uh, immediately change the Russian constitution and annex those regions perhaps within a day or two. Um, so you're going to have effectively fighting now taking place on what Putin is going to call Russian territory. And uh, what does that mean for the prospect of him using tactical nuclear weapons if things start not going his way? Does that have a question to me or to Rob? Yeah, to, to you, since you've written so much about this. I mean, we're kind of in uncharted territory
2: because one of the issues is that he may claim that that is now Russian territory, but it won't be recognized as such by anyone. And I don't think folks are going to accept the precedent that uh, by this means, Russia can try to extend nuclear deterrence to territory they just seized and annexed and then continue expanding itself, right? So I don't think that's something that's that's likely to work. Uh, I think this nuclear. I actually think that, Uh, His nuclear threat is is, or the implication of it is rather ill judged, because uh, it then intertwines with the credibility of nuclear deterrence extended over the Russian uh, annexation occupation of Crimea as well, and uh, it it risks a very serious uh, credibility challenge. But putting all that aside, you know there's been a lot. Uh, a lot of debate in recent years about Russian actual nuclear strategy and what the doctrine is and what have you. And I guess my short summary on this is that uh, the Russian military uh, does see, you know, a viable escalation ladder that begins with select employment of conventional capabilities against uh, select critical infrastructure and targets. Uh, and then limited nuclear employment for the purpose of demonstration or single and group strikes against uh, both military targets or civilian critical infrastructure. And that limited nuclear employment may not necessarily lead to uncontrolled escalation. That's a whole host of military views and thoughts and designs, but use of nuclear weapons is a political decision. And so at the end of the day, it really matters what one specific person thinks, which is Vladimir Putin. And if that moment ever arises, there's a couple things that I can probably say with good confidence won't happen, but I can't say what will. What won't happen is he probably will not call for people to grab him the latest copy of the military doctrine to lead very carefully what the declaratory policy clause was that they wrote in there before deciding on whether to use nuclear weapons and how. Okay,
0: those are not. uh, You mean that's not how wars are actually fought? Yeah, like that's not how they're fought,
2: nor, nor does nuclear uh, release authority require him to directly input the words as written in Russian declaratory policy from, from, uh, from these documents. So, you know, not to, uh, I'm, I'm sorry to, to uh, dismay some folks who think that it's that significant, but yeah, that's not how it's going to happen. Uh, to what extent the military shapes? political decision-making? That's an interesting question. The military typically provides options, a set of options, and the rationale for why they might work and what the risks are, and it tries to shape political perceptions as the viability or likelihood of success, right? But political leaders have their own thoughts, especially if you're a dictator in charge of a personalist authoritarian system for 22-plus years. So likely Putin has his own thoughts and ideas on the subject. And his statements are, are not necessarily always consistent with not only what the documents say, but what the documents say isn't necessarily consistent with each other. So these are kind of my views on it. I see it as typically as a, a fairly dark topic with a good deal of uncertainty. I see nuclear escalation as uh, a fairly low probability in general. However, you know, even in some of the more challenging moments of the Cold War, uh, people like Khrushchev saw the likelihood of nuclear escalation, let's say in the Berlin crisis, I think around 5%. And that was considered quite high. So in, in the nuclear escalation business, low probabilities are still actually considered to be rather high, given the prospective outcomes. That's, that's the only thing I'll, I'll say on that topic.
0: What, what are your views, Mike, on the equipment uh, piece going back to conventional weapons? Um, you know, Rob mentioned that we, we don't know how much equipment they've got left to arm this force. Um, do you think that will be a major concern for them? Uh, we've talked before how they may be running out of infantry fighting vehicles They may have plenty of tanks. Um, so what's what's your view on their ability to actually arm this force, mobilization force?
2: I think, I'll be honest, I, I personally am skeptical that equipment is that big of an issue. I think probably they'll be pretty constrained in protected mobility and just have to use older APCs like MTLBs and... and fees like BMP1s. But to me, the real issue is training and quality of personnel and officers to lead them. Because here's my view of what's happened. Let's say if there was never a good time for Russia to enact mobilization, but if there was a better time, it would have been back in April. Since April, they in effect consumed an important part of the mobilization base because they used up the remaining officers and enlisted professionals in a standing formations. Rob spoke to this. Okay. They also likely used up other people they could call up to lead the volunteer battalions that they created over the course of summer. Not only did they use up a lot of the equipment remaining in active force, right? Uh, They also probably used up some of the more ready and accessible equipment that could have been easily repaired and put into service. So now they're going through with partial mobilization. And of course, The question is, who is back at these units to train these individuals? Because a lot of these people were actually sent as replacements or sent to lead the additional forces deployed in Ukraine, right? Um, Second, you know, where will the new officers come from? It's clear that they're trying to shortchange the system by getting uh, those who are conscripts to put them through an officer course and then flip them to contract service and essentially try to mint uh, an officer— after barely a couple of months of training, which, you know, that can be an officer in name, but in practice that won't do. Right. Uh, and then the next issue is, of course, the one Rob have spoke to about morale. I mean, mobilization is principally coercive, right? So you're basically uh, you're, you're still basically dealing with a lot of the same morale issues and the lack of desire to for people to fight in this war. And it's most easily demonstrated by the fact that they couldn't solve the manpower problem through the volunteer unit approach. If people really wanted to fight, even for money, they would have had a much better recruitment outcome, which they didn't. And that's what's forced mobilization, which is, in many respects, my point of view,
0: a, a somewhat desperate measure at this stage. So and, and of course, we, we also saw the video of Prigozhin going to at least one prison colony trying to recruit prisoners. It's not clear how many uh, even those uh, sitting in Russian gulags are signing up to this war. But, Rob, uh, you're a former U.S. Marine Infantry officer. I'm curious on your view on this training. If they're indeed only sending people in, even those with former military experience, for a two-week refresher course, what do you think they're going to be able to get out of that um, and how effective are they going to be?
1: So it depends a lot on, on who these individuals are. Um, so it, it's not clear. Are they, are they going to eventually send conscripts or the just guys who served on the contract service? Um, you know that that whole part is not clear if you've got something-
0: well well shorigo let me just clarify shorigo says that the entire pool of potential uh recruits is 25 million which is way more than i believe than have ever served in in the russian uh, uh professional contractor uh corps right so it has to include at least some past conscripts
1: You're right and, and and so it's you know not clear who who they they call up another thing to keep in mind is a lot of the guys who previously served, um, you know, were volunteers back in the spring, right? Maybe they followed Wagner. Maybe they signed contracts with Russian military units. So you already had a lot of volunteers of guys who, who, who had recent combat experience who, who already went back to fight. And so now we're, we're taking people who, you know, have been in the military maybe longer ago. Um, you know, they're open questions, right? So if there's conscripts, conscripts don't get trained that well. If they, you know, if, if they, they did conscript service, a decade ago, right, they're not going to be in a very good position to be ready to do much. Um, you know, you can learn them, to, you can teach them to do maybe basic skills, how to shoot a rifle again. But, you know, especially if they're lacking any kind of technical skills, that's going to be really hard to replace. And that's going to become more harder to replace over time. Um, yes, you can replace riflemen more easily. But again, you know, you do that by lowering the quality of units. And if you lower the quality of units, they can do simple things. But they can't do complex things. Um, and so, again, sitting in a trench and, and you know, shooting at someone, you can do that. But, tr- you know, having them do offensive operations, having them kind of withstands really combined arms, offensive things of that nature, they're going to struggle to do. So, you know, we're, we're at a point where um, and this is something I was looking at back in, say, June or so, is that because this war is being increasingly A war of reservists and volunteers people who are not serving the military before february 24th on both sides a big question has been which side has a relative advantage um you know i thought morale wise ukrainians always did but it wasn't clear to me if if ukrainians were getting better training in ukraine back in say june or may compared to what russia was getting well the training program they're doing in the uk is much better than anything Russia getting and that means and that is only going to get um, become more important over time we have more ukrainian volunteers who are getting you know very good training in the uk while russian soldiers are getting much worse re- training in russia so all of these kind of factors over time um, say that ukraine's going to be better off their volunteers going to be better trained they're more motivated they're better led all those kind of factors so again you know it comes back to can this you know stem the tide in a very short term yes but it doesn't go, it doesn't really solve the long-term issues Russia has. And again, it just, you know, it doesn't seem as though Russia's leadership has a plan to, to um, you know, end this war on their terms, aside from hoping Ukraine or the West kind of stops their their role. And there's no reason to suspect that at the, at the time being. But I think this is mostly a kind of short-term move that can obviously set the stage for increased mobilization going forward if if it, if it isn't, Enough to kind of stem the tide. Um, but again, you know, the, the lots of open questions still. And, you know, the, the domestic politics question is going to increase as well. And, you know, it's, it's opening again. The, 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 one of the few things we do know about this is that it, it is a clear indication from Putin that he knows the war is not going the way he wants it to be. He knows that something had to change or else there are going to be greater losses. And he's taking a risk, right? There, uh, any decision he made or, or the lack of decision was would, would involve a risk. He's making a, a a very significant risky decision here, probably riskier than almost anything he's done in his career, other than maybe starting this war. That tells you something about the 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 kind of view of how this war is going from his perspective that he's taking such a kind of decision.
2: Mike, do you have any thoughts on this question? Yeah, I'm going a finger intervention. So. First on on people, I actually think that the only advantage for Russia of enacting mobilization is that they can now basically uh, impress 20 year olds and those from those who recently com- complete conscript service, as opposed to the volunteer units, which were largely men uh, around uh, ages uh, 50 and up, because now they can actually pick and choose uh, which people they forcibly mobilize as for the rest of it. I very much agree with Rob. The the long term issue is one of sustainability and reconstitution, and it looks like Ukraine over time can reconstitute better than Russia can, and that Russia can fix the quantity but not the quality deterioration of its force. That said, I'm probably maybe a little less sanguine because I don't think it's just a short term measure. It can also be a medium term measure. You know, as the old Milton, phrase, Milton Friedman the phrase goes, nothing is as permanent as temporary government solutions. And that this mobilization phase may just be the beginning of more mobilization. And that once they start to make the organizational adaptations and get the gears turning on how to try to create a pipeline of manpower they can allow them to extend the war. And this is the more disappointing or at least, I think, uh, uh, less optimistic takeaway, because while while this action signals that Putin clearly understands they're losing the war and the war effort as it is not sustainable, it also is a signal that he is willing to take the politically riskier option to extend the war. You know, this is a this is a signal of will, and will, wars are ultimately contestables, right? Because the easier option would have been to just pick retrenchment, right? Just withdraw from Kershaw, explain the way somehow, and try to re- basically consolidate and dramatically downsize political ambitions.
0: Well, the, the, war, easiest, the easiest option would have been to say, I've accomplished my objectives, I've demilitarized Ukraine by destroying a whole lot of it, and I'm done, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I don't know what I'm done means, because Ukraine gets to choose how the war ends and when. So it's not like Putin gets well, to... Well, I mean, pull, pull out, but but yeah. But Mike, I, I think this is a really important point, and, and let's bring the discussion to the political ramifications of this, because I do think they're incredibly significant, even though both Putin and Shoigu even more so are trying to downplay this show saying this is you know one percent of the total mobilization capacity it's a small number it's not a small number it's 300,000 people uh, could be 300,000 people and what's worse the way they rolled it out clearly so rushed. there's so many questions about who is eligible uh, to be mobilized um, um, and this is I, I'm certain is creating an enormous fear factor across the Russian population, certainly young males that could potentially be called up to serve their families, their parents, their wives, uh, their children, and so forth. And even though many of them may be tacitly supporting the war, it's really more of an apathetic support right now. And it's a very different situation when you're being called up to fight and potentially die for this war. So um, they're trying to split the baby in in terms of not going with uh, full mobilization um, that they thought might be politically precarious and maybe even not doable. But to me, it still strikes as incredibly dangerous politically, both on the mobilization front and then on the setting of the red lines, that the goal of this operation is the liberation of the Donbass, uh, again, in Putin's word, liberation of the Donbass, uh, moving forward with these referendum uh, in territories that they don't even fully control and where there's still a lot of fighting going on, and, and in some cases they're losing territory, and... Uh, Putin is painting himself into a corner here, in my view. And Mm -hmm. uh, if he uh, does not achieve those objectives that he's outlined, he can be in a very politically precarious position. Um, What do you think, Mike? Okay, Uh, two brief comments. First, I I think that these steps, both annexation of the
2: territory and mobilization, is you're essentially seeing him increasingly stake the regime on this war annexation is a point of no return after that there'll be nothing possibly left to negotiate with ukraine ukrainians are not going to negotiate anything like that that is a visible point of no return and mobilization to an extent is too because this is de facto enacting wartime measures uh without declaring it but it has the same effect and partial mobilization affects uh everybody because everybody in russia understands or, or or at least i'm sure men do that they could be in the next wave and that this is only the beginning. That's going to affect them even if they're not called up immediately, right? And general mobilization to me was always a misnomer because as Rob explained and I completely agree, Russia doesn't have a mass mobilization army and doesn't have the capacity to enact mass mobilization. It hasn't had a mass mobilization army for a long time. Uh, so it wasn't. It's, it's practically infeasible. But partial mobilization has significant political ramifications. So it shows that uh, Putin has... I mean, you've said he's paying himself into a corner. I think he's really just principally stake, now staking the regime on this war and is going to uh, steadily foreclose other options. Annexation certainly will. If he goes forward with that, I don't I think I think that, that very much is uh, somewhat crossing the Rubicon. So that's that's I I don't know what Rob what Rob might want to add. So I
1: you know, I know I, I, I think a slight disagreement in that instead of saying he's staking... Uh, the regime on this war, I think he's acknowledging that the regime is already at stake. And, you know, I asked this yesterday that he kind of had three kind of rough options here, right? There's some kind of mobilization, possibly escalating with, with, you know, tactical nuclear weapons, or just losing territory, losing territory that Russian forces have occupied um, and potentially, you know, a, a, a significant amount of it. And he went with the first option. Um, all of those options come with, you know, significant risks um and he decided the first one you know for whatever reason was the less less risky was that because he thinks the prospects for success are the best if they do if it does that or because he thinks losing you know the donbass um in the near future or a lot of the donbass in the near future would be politically a bigger threat to him i don't know um but i think you know it's very clear he uh putin put himself in a very bad position here and there you know there's still no good options for him to to end this war on his terms and, you know, again, it, it, one of the remarkable things is that Russian officials, when they're interviewed about the war, they keep repeating you know, the war aim is, is it includes regime change, always extremely ambitious things they can't achieve. And it's very clear they can't achieve. And they keep mentioning that. And they keep trying to kind of forestall any attempt of actual negotiations. Um, and it's just, again, it's just. Although
0: Putin is not mentioning that he, he, he's been talking about Donbass for the last few months.
1: He, he has, but he, but um, Lavrov and Medvedev, when asked, they still mention regime change as, as a goal. And again, it's just, it's, it's kind of strategic, just, you know, procrastination and and just kind of a lack of streak, uh, clear sheet goals of what Russia's trying to achieve and how they're trying to achieve them. It's still not clear. It hasn't been clear, clear for months. And even with mobilization, it's not clear how, they, how this gets them to an end state that they want to achieve. And I, I, I think we're going to keep seeing, you know, additional short-term kind of, Uh, actions taken to respond to short-term problems, but will that build up to any kind of long-term solution? Like, highly doubt it.
0: The one interesting thing I want to point out is that Putin in his speech said that this was uh, a request from the uh, Ministry of Defense, from Shoigu and and Gerasimov, presumably, uh, that that he is responding to. Um, I mean, this is speculation, Mike, uh, because we, we don't know what's going on in the Russian Ministry of Defense, but do you think that they presented other options that were potentially more ext- extensive and this was a compromise?
2: I mean, they may, have, I'm not sure what's much, uh, much more extensive than this. I mean, they may have presented a a larger uh, call-up option or, or an escalation option, but I can't imagine what else it might've been. This is a pretty significant move. And I think the one implication of it, that we haven't necessarily discussed but just sort of consider and i don't have very well developed thoughts on the subject is the sustainability question what happens you know as this war drags on there, there are big challenges for russia but there are also challenges for ukraine and military analysts often have a blind spot for economic questions right and sort of assume that a state can maintain a long-term uh state of mobilization and it's a challenge that, that I sort of grapple with, because uh, this is this is the question of, OK, if this war drags on well into 2023 or maybe even beyond, what does that mean for Russia? And what does that mean for Ukraine in terms of economic sustainability? And, you know, the other part I'll say, just to be very frank, that uh, we're in uncharted waters. Uh, Those of us who follow the Russian military have not seen partial mobilization or mobilization of any kind before. And many folks in our subfield, myself included, don't really specialize on the question of mobilization or necessarily reserves, although I've written a bit about Russian attempts to create a reserve system over the years. But it's not a very well-trodden path in terms of research and analysis. So I just want to kind of caveat uh, how little, how little we know here, and that there's much,
0: many more questions than answers. Are you saying you can't call up on your extensive experience fighting World War II? Yeah, I, I wasn't in that war,
2: and, um, and you know, I also, well, I'll I'll, 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 be polite and not make any comments about Twitter University, but I, but I will say that I'm, I'm not in a good position to discuss how partial mobilization uh, might play out in Russia, given that we've not seen something like this before.
0: So you guys are both analysts, but I'm going to ask you to put sort of a policymaker hat on for a second. And uh, this will be a question directed to both of you. But Mike, maybe you first. If there is a use of a nuclear weapon, either as a demonstration or an actual use on the battlefield, what do you think the? what would you advise President Biden to do in response? Yeah, can we
1: dodge that one?
0: (laughs) Uh, We'll go to Rob first while you're thinking.
1: Uh, I actually want to punt on that, too. Um,
0: yeah. Oh, <laughs> like come on, guys. Somebody else who's not on us.
1: <laughs> no, I mean, what I'll say is I, I think that the U.S. should be communicating um, in very clear terms to Russia what the response would be. So it factors into to their decision making. Um, but, you know, there, there are better nuclear scholars than I. And so there are better people to, to, to talk about what the response should be. Do, do, I, go ahead, Mike.
2: Well, I was just going to say that I, I'll be honest, I don't have a response I'm willing to make here. I just want to wish Sheikh Sullivan and the rest of the NSC the best of luck.
0: Yeah, I mean, presumably they're trying to communicate to China, India and others to tell Putin that this is unacceptable, uh, we would hope, and uh, maybe that is getting through. He has listened to concerns from Global South countries in the past when it came to their concerns about not getting grain from Ukraine, and, and he struck that deal with, with Erdogan, so he clearly does not want to be completely isolated, and, and using a nuclear weapon would almost certainly make him a complete pariah. Um, guys, we're going to wrap up. This was great. Uh, uh, let's go to both of you for any last thoughts on what uh, today really means. Mike, we'll start with you. So. I think it's a significant act. I don't think it's anything folks should hyperventilate over. I don't think it's going to
2: dramatically change the trajectory of the war for Russia or potentially alter the outcome. But as I said, I think it may extend uh, Russia's ability to sustain the war. And there's a lot we don't yet know about how this will be implemented and what the Russian you know, public's reaction will be and, and what have you. But it is also a significant political signal uh, from Vladimir Putin and the political establishment. Uh, so I want to be cautious to also avoid being overly dismissive, right? And caveat that a lot of what happens from this, you know, somewhat depends.
0: It is contingent. I'm shocked. Rob. I, I tried to use another word for contingent. <laughs> I'm going to get your T-shirt one day. Worst contingent. Rob, last thoughts from you.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I agree. I think um, there I have more questions than answers right now. Um, it's not fully clear what the scope is going to be, not fully clear how they're going to implement it. Um, I think in the short term, it's, you know, it's potential to just, uh, kind of increase the criminal penalties for fusniks, um, the potential deployment of conscripts who are currently serving and, and stop lossing kind of volunteers that could have a, you know, short-term benefit over the, you know, right now and over the winter, um, you know, we get to 2023 kind of unclear what it's going to do. I, I, it isn't, it doesn't solve a lot of Russia's problems. I think Ukraine has a number of advantages. Um, I think, you know, morale, discipline, those kind of things, right? Really important tangibles. All those Ukraine has a huge advantage in leadership as well. And look, I mean, we, we just saw what happened in Kharkiv, uh, Ukraine demonstrated, they can do a very impressive operational, um, uh, uh you know, offensive with combined arms, which they, they demonstrate what they can do with, with weapons going forward. Russia has not demonstrated that same level. Even a
0: river crossing, right?
1: Yes. Yeah, so I think, yeah, in some cases. So, um, you know, again, it, I think there's still every reason to be bullish uh, on Ukraine's behalf and, you know, how Russia responds. Not sure. Um, but as Mike said, you know, the one thing we do know is is a, a supremely significant political decision for Putin, arguably the most significant one or one of the most significant ones he's made in his entire time and, in, 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 you know, as a as leader of Russia. Um, and it shows that the position, you know, of Russian forces in Ukraine is, is not very good. And there is acknowledgement that their their position is, um, you know, is, is in trouble. Sorry, I lied. One, one last
0: question. Um, I just remembered. Um, you talked, Rob, a little bit about how uh, Ukraine wants to make some progress before winter sets in. I'm curious for, you know, both of your, your thoughts on, on the impact of the weather here. I mean, Putin launched this war in February in the midst of winter. So clearly that did not deter the Russians of at least trying offensive operations. Do you think it would, it would stop the Ukrainians? Do you think that this fight would fundamentally change during, during, during the winter?
1: So, it, it, the weather might, so I mean, in, in the fall, it might change if, if um, vehicles can't go off road as effectively. That might make it more difficult. I don't think it, you know, it, I don't think we're going to see a complete stalemate of some along those lines. I also think when the weather gets bad, um, morale, discipline, those kind of things, those are really important advantages. And Ukraine has that. And so I think they'll press that. And again, keep in mind, even if the, the, the front line becomes somewhat, you know, stable at a certain point, Ukraine is still doing things behind Russian lines, right? Partisan activities, sabotage, targeting uh, collaborator officials—all of that makes it more difficult and costly for for Russia to occupy these areas, and that's an advantage for Ukraine as well. So, again, there are a number of advantages for Ukraine. I suspect the winner, you know know—we'll still see them do operations. And again, you know, when when you least expect something to happen, that's the best time to do something. So, uh, and Ukrainians have proven they're they're able to to uh, you know achieve surprise. So, I wouldn't be surprised to see more of that.
0: Yeah, uh, Mike, your, your view, I mean, vehicles still drive on roads in the winter in Ukraine, right? So I'm, I'm puzzled why um, winter would change things substantially, but curious if you, if you think that.
2: Yeah, I, I don't think that that's going to be the main issue. It's just a question of how, uh, I think, how Ukrainians choose to play it, because they principally have the initiative. So, so the, the, the Ukrainian military may want to make it more a contest of attrition in the winter, Banking on the fact that they are reconstituting much better than the Russian military and that over time, as they come out of the winter, they'll be much better positioned to renew offensives and create these sort of major operational dilemmas for the Russian armed forces in 2023, or they can also choose to conduct another offensive operation in the winter. It somewhat depends. I think I, I think probably the battlefield will be more dynamic than people expect. I agree on that with Rob. Uh, and you know, but yeah. Long story short is the the winter, particularly the middle of winter, in of itself
0: is usually not preventive of military operations. All right. Well, fascinating discussion as always. My takeaways are that this is an incredibly significant decision, politically significant decision by Putin. He's doubling down. He's putting all of his chips on the table as far as this war con- is concerned. This war did not start out as an existential war for Russia, of course, but he's making it so, at least for. Uh, as far as his um, regime is concerned. Uh, but um, what I'm hearing from both of you is that you don't think that this action will necessarily be decisive in terms of the military gains that he can achieve and that uh, Ukraine still has a long-term advantage uh, given how things have unfolded since February 24th. So thanks again for joining us and uh, we'll, you'll hear from us soon. Take care. Don't care whether you're young or old I'll let the good times
1: roll It makes no difference If it's rainy weather